Welcome to Pillow Voices, a production of Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, with content from the Pillow Archives. I'm Norton Owen, the Pillow's Director of Preservation, and it's my pleasure to introduce Pillow scholar Jennifer Edwards, who is also the Director-Producer of Pillow Voices. She will be your host for this episode, looking at how dancers and choreographers have both confronted and embodied social constraints in different ways. What does it mean to use your embodied experience as source material for your art? This is a question that I have confronted as an artist who mined her body and her life for creative inspiration and always with an agenda. For this episode, I sought dancers and choreographers who could speak to this practice. One aspect that strikes me when looking to find conversation about embodied politics in the archives is that what is available may seem more philosophical or intellectual than focused on the physical. But when speaking about dance, most dancers don't talk about their bodies. Perhaps because our bodies are the instruments, the tools, and the media through which we create. And so I suppose I'm asking you to go on a journey with me. One where we acknowledge that what these individuals share in words is expressed physically in dance and therefore exemplifies embodied politics. We begin with some sage advice that offers a window into one artist's lived experience of giving oneself the permission to be free within the creative process. Here is Jeffrey Holder, writer, designer, visual artist, choreographer, dancer, a voice you may remember from 7-Up commercials in the 1970s and 80s, and of course, husband to the ineffable Carmen de Lavalade. Holder speaks to his take on age, or maybe his lack of concern with it. I am still a child and always be a child. I'm 77 going on 10. <laughs> I have to I see the world like a little boy. I will always see like a little boy. Fred, what's that? Why? I saw my brother face and I that. Get it out. You see things, you have to get it. Oh, don't keep it in. There's no such word of never or no, you can't. You're telling yourself that. Now, unfortunately, the quality of that recording is not very good. But I had to sneak in at least a moment of the font of wisdom that was and is Jeffrey Holder. We will shift the narrator now and hear from Carmen de Lavalade in conversation with Pillow scholar Maura Keefe in July of 2004, when she was at the Pillow performing with Gus Solomons Jr. and Dudley Williams, among others, in Paradigm, a company of dancers who, at the time, were all in their 60s and 70s. You said um, in an interview in 1979, you can take a lifetime to discover what you want to say in your art. And you have worked with such a range of choreographers, not to mention and all directors. The, and, and directors. <laughs> yeah. How do you keep discovering new ways to work? Like, yeah. Well, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. You start out something, and then you have to you take what you have, and then you have to you listen to the choreographer because they have their vision, and you try to give them their vision, but that sometimes, but it's kind of a, you know, um, you. 
metamorphose or whatever you you kind of shape yourself shapeshifter <laughs> you know you have to shape yourself and mold yourself to what they would like but but it takes experience and I and even the old nightclub experiences I've had believe it or not hated it but it was a great experience so do you think now working with a younger choreographer like Move or Roden that you know they're feeling the the pressure of Mr. McHale's presence and Mr. Ailey's presence? Oh, I don't know. I think they're they're kind of hi, Richard. <laughs> I think they enjoy working with it. I mean, when when you know I make them understand. You know, I'm poor Richard. You know, I could say, uh, Richard, Miss Ruth here. Ruth St. Dennis movement, please. You know, a <laughs> few arms, please. You know, because they're. I mean, we cannot fly all over like the young people do, nor should we. But I know in Dwight Roden's piece, it was really nice to do. I don't. And in fact, he did it in two hours, and he we can't even remember doing it. it. We got in the room, and something happened, and it just flew. And he can't remember doing it, and we can't remember doing it, but it just worked. So then you had a dance after. Yes, but you know what he said, which is really very nice, is that. As you as you mature, let's say it's not getting. I hate that word old. The pyramid's old. <laughs> the, you know, it's it, the maturity. You get richer, and and what happens is that Dwight said he said, you know why I like working with you and Gus or people like you. I said why? He said because when I give you a movement, you're already performing it. We don't have to do all the intermediate. We just go right to the, you know, right to what it's all about. But it sounds like that's what you were saying. Uh, Lester Horton was teaching you to do right from the very beginning. So In a you know. way, he gave us that imagery. And Carmelita. Now, Carmelita, you know, it, you get that, oh, I used to hate those Ronde Jambes. You know, those things. Ding, and the leg going out like this. She said, you know where that came from? She's this wonderful lady. She says, they had skirts, and it's kicked the skirt kick the skirt, the flounce goes up. And what happens is when you have that in your imagery, musically, it comes out right. You don't have to say, and one, and two, and one. You don't have to do that. You just go kick the skirt, and it automatically, the leg goes where it's supposed to go, and it just does it. And I've tried it in my classes. You know, I get the, the youngsters to do the, the round job. Oh, and they get very happy because it, <laughs> it really helps. Or this old thing when you get to the bar, you know, go like this and like that. She says, you know where that came from? She says in the old time, Italian things, I guess, good old Italian. Yeah. Said, from my heart to you. That's where it came. So that when you do your bar, this thing to there means something. Instead, arm in, arm out. You know? And it gives you something. Gives it, do you understand what I mean? And so she gave it, you know, I mean, we have these balances, and you'd balance, and you'd balance. She says, ah, she says, I want you to suspend like El Greco paintings. So long, and if you have that in your mind, you just go up there and rise. And Lester would say, you're crawling through this, or you're in a box, or you, your relationship to one another, you know, it's all that. So you're, you're focused in on relationships. Of course, in those days, it was um, the uh, story. We did more stories. Now it's more abstract. I find that challenging when I work with Johannes and, and with Richard. It's a challenge for me to really go abstract. You know, that's kind of, that, that's, I can't say hard for me, but it makes my brain work differently. We, I mean, this is something I'm appreciating very much about what you're saying is we often think that dancers are, even from Walter Terry's comment in 1953, calling you an instrument of expression, that, but it doesn't necessarily acknowledge 
the, the, the body-mind engagement of what's the way that you take that image and how does it open your There's heart. There's a lot of mind yeah. work going on there. I mean, if it doesn't, it comes out very, very uh, stiff and automatic. It doesn't... It, it's it, The body's a great communicator, and we see it every day. That's how we communicate with you. We don't have to say anything, because somebody can sit there like this, and we know exactly what they're thinking. They don't even know it. You can tell, you know, and so that we communicate all the time with the body. But to put that into music and phrasing, and, and it's much more complicated than most people think. And I think it's, when you work that way, I find that young people like working like that. So it's not always, you know, you're bent on get your leg pointed. If you have a reason to point your leg, it's going to point. If you, but it comes from your imagination. With your um, performances this week here at the Pillow, you will now hold the record for the longest uh, performing career at Jacob's I, Pillow. I can't believe it. Norton Owen told me that, and I couldn't believe. I said, "No, that's not true. It's not true." But you see, time goes so by. I, I, you know, I do things, and I just move on. I don't count. I don't look back. I just move on, and I enjoy my past. Could you say something about the uh, company paradigm and how that came to, into fruition? Well, that came because of Gus Solomon. He called Dudley Williams and myself. Hello, Dudley. Dudley Williams and myself. Mr. Williams is there and ask if we would like to work together. And, um, and I found it very interesting because, you know, I call us the Becketts of the dance. I, I, I happen to like Samuel Beckett's plays. I like the sparseness of it and the strangeness of it. But I just found it very interesting to take our age, who we are now, and to take that and develop a way of moving. And I always feel that each age has its story to tell and that I find that when you're mature, that there are things to be said. And I don't see why that it's always the young folks that have to say it. You know, they haven't experienced it yet. So it, it's, they can't say what we can say. And we are still part of life. And we can still move. We don't... The, the young people are doing exactly what they should be doing, flying all over the place, bending their head, you know, all that stuff, legs flying. That's wonderful. That's exactly what they should be doing. But I think as you go, you have to find other ways of saying what you want to say. And that's the, the lovely part of being in place because they can go on. They have, they have substance. They are things to say and words to say. And it would be nice. When I was coming out, my God, dancers danced way up. Jose Limon, even Martha, and all, you know, danced way beyond what kids thought now in their 30s. They're just getting good at that. By the time you're there, that's when you really start that's going. That's the experience oh, of my performing, God. finally. Yeah, that's why I like the uh, Complexions Dance Company because they're all that age and they're Fantastic men and women by that time, and their their bodies are just great, and the, and the energy they don't. St it's fascinating, but I think that sometimes now we've been cutting out a little bit too soon on certain things. But maybe there's a way of finding another way of, of finding another way of, of continuing dance in a different way. So we and I find that the young people like it. We got get together and have a great time, and I think the younger choreographers find that maybe they they have to. Mm, be a little more imaginative because they have their their not I can't say constricted but you yeah can't, limited. You, you can't yeah. fall on can't fall on yeah, the trick. You know? But it becomes interesting. Then then you, the the working situation becomes very interesting. Delavalade makes so many important points about dancing over the course of one's life, as well as working in intergenerational collaboration. 
As we age, we gain knowledge and awareness in our bodies, minds, and in how we connect with any task at hand. This makes me think of the grooves that cover the surface of any human brain. We know that those grooves deepen over time and represent well-worn neuropathways caused by repetition. It only makes sense that this applies to the muscle memory of performance as well. Age, or maturity, as Delavalad reframes it, should be a boon, not a detriment to a dancer. However, in our current society, dancing professionally in one's 60s, 70s, and 80s is a rarity and therefore counter to our culture or a radical act, one that disrupts the status quo and challenges perceived norms. This next clip of Terry O'Connor in conversation with Maura Keefe centers sexual orientation and the phenomenology of growing up a closeted gay individual. The closet represents the act of putting away or hiding aspects of oneself from society due to fear of persecution. O'Connor shares how his choreographic practice was shaped by and explores structures of consciousness, disconnect, and queerness. I think both because it's a weekend out and because of some things you've written and said, it seems like a place to start by talking about the closet. Physical space, a symbol, a structure, a code, a threshold, a creator of identity. Um, You wrote in uh, creating the work Cover Boy that's here this week that you've extracted structural conceits from the closeted gay experience uh, to help you in the choreographic process. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit first about um, how you would define the closet. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, in this instance, I'm talking about the closet that we're thinking of and talking about. And I, I mean, I have to really, at this point in history, make a difference because what's going on right now and what's going on when I was young in a very rural area are quite different. And I'm really happy that things are changing. And the closet I'm talking about is a, se- a completely secreted life um, that was based on a fear of death. You know, I mean, it was not, there was no one gay where I grew up. And I knew it at a very young age, and so right away, you become a little driver inside your body, like in the eye, of, like driving this body that you're not really in anymore. <clears throat> and this idea of a surface that's generated for the community or for the kind of um, people who have agreed to standardize um, human behavior versus what you're feeling, you are immediately outside. No one knows you're outside, you're presenting a version that's obeying all the rules, but inside you're seeing thing, things completely differently. So this division so of surface versus internal motors replic- is replicated in dance for me. So, I mean, it almost feels like you're saying it like almost slightly disembodied, that, that you feel like you're there and you're presenting something, yes. but then you're removed from it at the same time. You are both, you're kind of like, your body is like a big puppet that you're sending out and you're telling it what to do but you're not really engaged in it fully. Do you think that you knew um, that you knew to perform roles that you felt like <clears throat> this is what the expectations that everybody has of me, so this is how I ought to act and conform? I mean, do, do I you remember making like those a, consci- conscious choices? No, I feel like a lot of it is really accidental. I feel like it's just taken me this long to just simply say that I think the, the extremity of my closet experience apart from the kind of lifetime movie element of it, <laughs> the emotional part, which was big, but also like where it situated me definitely created what I make. It is absolutely the one, the most generative information about 
how I see dance maybe differently from other histories of, around dance. Well, I, I've been thinking a little bit about um, about this idea that um, that you sort of are performing already, that you're sort of figuring out how to perform a role. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, yeah. and yeah. I'm wondering if you think that feeds a kind of creativity. Um, or, or, or maybe I should make it more, as you said, more specific to the sort of generation that you're talking about, that it fed a kind of creativity because you already were acting. Yeah, that's a part of it, I think. And that's part of what's going on in a dance is a kind of subterfuge of um, things like virtuosity or um, um, artifice pushed to an extreme are versions of saying to people, I'm doing something that you're not doing right now, and I'm not really here. So the idea that you're always perpetuating artifice says you can't take this as real. And that is one layer of what's going on in the dance. Other things that are moving more towards the real, I mean, I don't know exactly how to say that, but to layers that are further away from any kind of definition or any kind of nomenclature. So you go in and out, in the work, for example, and in one's personality. In, in Coverboy specifically? In Coverboy, really in all of my work, this kind of this kind of detachment that I don't think only of as a negative word, mm -hmm. of the kind of motors that generate the dance as it moves forward versus the symbols that are riding on those motors go in and out of dissonance and consonance with each other. And that's the same thing kind of with one's personality. There's certain places where you just only present facade mm -hmm. because you're either disinterested or feel unsafe. And other places where there's a different blend of those two things that can come out, like the real you can be more engaged with the facade you. Um, and I think that's what's happening a lot of overtimes in, in my dances, definitely, willfully, is that I'm setting up artifice or, or moments that make people lean in and say, that's kind of entertaining, and then another dog comes up that has more bark <laughs> through it somehow. Uh -huh. um, so I, I'm thinking about um, this sort of notion maybe of dance as a place of... Um, of refuge because mm -hmm. of its because of its uh, non specificity of of language mm -hmm. or something and I'm you know if 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 there was the if there's the facade you and then there's the real you driving mm -hmm. that it feels like you already were living in this world <clears throat> that maybe is a step removed from yeah I mean it could be but it's also a step closer to a more um, balanced view of consciousness where language isn't so frontal in your experience. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not the only thing that defines you, that a kind of ideas like rumination versus specif specific knowledge versus experimental ideas versus the unknown all converge in a way in dance and in, in the conscious mind mm -hmm. that we've built systems to ignore. So for me, dance can kind of offer us a look at consciousness that's more expansive, that says there are many things going on in very subtle ways that are restrictive in your lives, and have you made a choice to do that, or is that happening to you? And so there's a kind of basic politic of saying, here's another way of arranging the stuff of consciousness. So I, I, it seems like um, maybe a little bit you're he heading toward thinking about, or I'm heading uh, toward us Let's thinking a little bit. We. We are think heading towards thinking about maybe narrative and the specificity of language that goes with narrative mm -hmm. and how uh, your work is often um, both non-narrative and anti-narrative. Mm -hmm. And, and um, talk, can you talk a little bit about the importance of abstraction in dance for you? Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, right now, I think one of the things, and this, this really has a lot to do with the kind of the closeted realm, because I think in some of my first works, and slash in many dance works from the modernist tradition, there is a kind of obfuscation of a story. The abstraction, there was a story, and then you spray cloudiness on it, and that's what abstraction is. <laughs> and that, for me, isn't what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm looking at abstraction as the other side, the way out to more. It's like a portal into a much more ample way of knowing everything. I mean, I even think it's something that I would dare say we could, we could take ideologies from choreography and press them towards po politics, literally, to Congress. <laughs> to, say that, to say that there are different measures, things are out of balance, and we, we are only living in a place of definitions of polarities, and that a more spectral look at things might be a kind of antidote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love where O'Connor leaves us with this question of how certain elements of choreographic and embodied practice might offer a non-dualistic approach to governing, one that might facilitate a less polarized, more balanced state. I think of all the various ways in which we define and differentiate groups of people, how we divide people into old and young, gay and straight, and so on. These experiences are political because they are used to group and categorize us. However, the final conversation I'd like to share puts a finer point on the topic, because Jowle Willa Joe Zoller took something as seemingly simple as hair and exposed it for the tangled web of culturally entwined tendrils that it is. I started working on hair stories in 1995. <laughs> I started it as just kind of a stand-up comedy routine. I knew I had something, but I didn't know what it was. And often when I'm searching for something, I just started telling stories and just, you know, improvising. And uh, I discovered that... Um, I in doing that, I discovered a lot of things which I really didn't know, which was so much of my point of reference was from African-American point of view. And a lot of the terminologies and po uh, points of reference, weren't, they weren't crossing cultures. So, you know, the first time I did it, I did it in front of an African-American audience and people were laughing and rolling in their house. And the next time it was a white audience and people were sitting there deadpan. <laughs> and I thought... Okay, so I realized I needed, um, people needed more information about the background, so I created a character, Dr. Professor, um, who is, in my mind, and, and this character is a anthropologist in the African American Studies Department with a specialty in napology. And um, napology would be the study of nappy hair, so... So I created this character to just kind of help introduce this world that some people know about. And, and, and what I've also discovered is there's many African-American people because of the generational differences. There's terminology that I would use that I grew up with that some of the younger people didn't know what it meant. So it wasn't just for white audiences or black audiences. It was really that I, that I found that there was a world I needed to introduce people to that maybe was specific to me growing up in Kansas City in the 50s. Um, and you know, in an African-American community, and I needed to uh, expand how people were able to enter that world. So one of the characters was Dr. Professor, and she's, um, she's based on one of my professors that I had in college, and who's now a colleague, and he's an oppression theorist. 
he studies the um, the nature of oppression, and he's he's just an, one of the most incredibly brilliant people I've ever known. So I based it on him, and then some other characters uh, are, were. See, you know, when we travel as a company, one of the things, our hair, when this is group of women together, our hair becomes a source of curiosity. So we started, we realized that we had all had these hair stories, you know, from people just coming up to us while we're traveling, because some women in the company are bald, or some might, you know, have different color hair, and some have, you know, locks, you know, or dreadlocks, if, you know, it's matted hair together, and, you know, some of us have big afros, and we're just being who we are but when you see us all together sometimes it's I guess it's very interesting so we've had people react to us and um, so some of the some of the characters that I developed are, are based on some of the reactions that we've gotten uh, from people reacting to us and also from the hair parties which that's when Carmela got involved we started having hair parties where we would have in a living room we'd have a group of women talking about hair and the issues about hair, and you know, <laughs> I see a lot of women laughing. Yeah, and it just some of them would go on and on and on. But that we we developed stories from from those women that we met, um, and we and we took some of the characters and just expanded them and made them into comedy. Um, so we would take someone. Um, there was one woman at one of the hair stories who was a motivational speaker. So um, I just took her. A few more notches up, and she become became one of our characters, Jeannie Jones Johnson. So, at, at the hair parties, were they uh, primarily African American women who were there, or was just women mixed. sitting around talking about their hair? Yeah, it was mixed. Some some were primarily. It just depended on who hosted them and where they were held. Some had men. Some were. It just depended. Really, yeah. Some were mixed. All different ages. When I titled this series, Choreographing the Social Consciousness, it was works like hair stories that I had in the back of my mind. Zoller does so much with this one area of inquiry that has the power to open dialogue, teach, build community, and understanding of others' experiences across race, age, geography, gender, and histories. Here again are Keith and Zoller. And Jelly, when you realized that um, a white audience wasn't getting it when you first were doing it as a stand-up thing, was this the, was it the first time you realized like sort of the, the how culturally specific some of your work was? Well, I think I I knew that, um, and I and I and my feeling has always been the more specific, the more universal, in a lot of ways. Um, I just didn't realize that hair, like there's a there's a term that we call the kitchen in our hair and you know and I was you know I was making this joke about the kitchen and people were sitting there looking what on earth is she talking about <laughs> trying to figure out how the kitchen related but we call this area in the back of the neck where the hair is generally the kinkiest we call that the kitchen um, how many people knew that before this <laughs> <laughs> she knew that. so it was things like that realizing that there were certain things or so what a perm is you know for white people when you get a perm generally it's to make your hair curly whereas for black people when we get a perm it's to make our hair straight so if i was telling a joke about a perm and then it was like you know, it wasn't necessarily translating so it was just understanding those differences and and then being able to you know work with them similar to how o'connor offers the idea of choreographic process as a way to complexify duality zoller in my opinion offers another piece to the puzzle 
She saw a difference and worked toward building understanding. She offered the inroads toward learning rather than resenting those who didn't have the reference points or lived experience. To me, this is in large part the function of art that somehow explicitly interfaces with society and social issues. Dance, because it relies on the body to convey the content of a choreographer's message, has the ability to live that much closer to the bone, so to speak, as it raises awareness. We will end with a bit of a history lesson, offered by Zoller and her colleague, a character she calls Dr. Professor. Well, there's the whole concept of good hair and bad hair. And um, it's a very complex issue we've been trying to, because it's, it's different than just a good hair day or a bad hair day. It's tied, I mean, it, the research, it's tied all the way back to when African people were brought to this country in slavery. And as slaves, you were not able to care for your hair. First of all, you didn't have the tools, you didn't have the devices, so women wearing their hairs and hair in the scarves. And so, first of all, you just did not have the ability to address your hair in the way that you might have. And then the other thing is that it wasn't valued. I mean, nappy hair was like, you know, hair that was coarse. It was very different than the longer, straighter hair. So the value of it... Um, it was bad hair because it was kinky, it was coarse. Um, the whole idea of combing hair through is a pretty European concept. Um, at least later European, because there's a friend of mine who says that, you know, she talks about locks and dreadlocks, and she's, she's a hair loctician. And she says, no, honey, that, but that was the original hairstyle. Well, none of us born with a comb and a brush. That's an invention. <laughs> so, um, so everybody at some point in time had matted hair. But uh, at the point, but that was a more European idea to comb the hair. Within um, traditional cultures of Africa, kinky hair, you worked with it in different creative ways. But this idea of taking a comb and combing through it, is a very European concept. So, so now you have people whose hair doesn't match, you know, the expectations here, and they're trying to, you know, do, you know, make it do things that it doesn't do, and all those things. And so, this whole concept of good hair, hair, you know, that is straighter, became good hair, kinky hair, or as one young woman who I just who I met from, she just she was a young girl of about seven years old, and for her, she called she didn't like strong or, or uh, 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 kinky hair, nappy hair. She didn't like it, but she called it strong hair. She didn't want strong hair like that. <laughs> that was very interesting. Um, so, you know, hair that was kinky or nappy was considered bad hair because it wasn't straight. So, now I've just told it in that way, but Dr. Professor tells it in a, another way. I'll see if I can conjure her. I also this this character is you know you know how like academic people like more like, uh -oh. they like to use a lot of big words. If we begin to examine the phenomenology of hair in African American culture, perhaps we'll begin to understand a complex socioeconomic dynamic perpetrated by values attached to race, class, and gender through the lens of a people who are existing in relationship to a dominant paradigm of a white power structure that influences all aspects of American life, thus leading to a construct of good hair, <laughs> bad hair. So that's that's what it is. 
Before we close, I wanted to give a shout out to another dance podcast, the Dance Edit Podcast, hosted by a group of knowledgeable, passionate editors from dance media. Every Thursday morning, they lead a roundtable discussion of the week's top dance stories, followed by an interview with one of the dance artists shaping the news. Whether you're a dancer, a dance educator, or a dance patron, you'll find something that moves you on the Dance Edit Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or at thedanceedit.com slash podcasts. That's it for this episode of Pillow Voices. Thank you for joining us today. On behalf of Jacob Spillow, we look forward to sharing more dance with you through the films, essays, and podcasts at danceinteractive.jacobspillow.org and, of course, through live experiences during our festival and throughout the year. Special thanks to the National Endowment for the Arts for helping launch this podcast series. Please subscribe to Pillow Voices wherever you get your podcasts and visit us again soon, either online or on-site.